All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, on today's episode of Making the Argument, we had something planned and I scrapped it. And I'll tell you why I scrapped it is because I was looking through the news and all the articles that I know you guys are going to be seeing over the next few days. I was like, my gosh, we've got a lot of issues coming up. Everything from immigra immigration and, and you know people getting bused to you know blue cities to uh, insulin price caps to the left's response to the queen. Turns out the left, not big fans of the queen. Anyways, we're going to talk about all those issues and more, and we're going to provide you with the arguments that you're going to need in order to address some of these critical issues that are coming up. Plus, we're going to address some of the conservative responses as well, and Hamilton's going to help us do all of that. Coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate you spending this time with us. If you haven't already, we hope you'll go to the description of this podcast and join us in Volley, where we will likely be discussing this topic further right there with everyone involved in our Volley chat. And as well, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and comment on the YouTube channel. We appreciate it. And that lets us know we are doing a good job. I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, a pretty good guy. This is my this is my ugly mug that my beautiful bride, Queen of the Bees, Tina, gave for me for my birthday. Thank you, honey. You're welcome, babe. It was a great idea. And then we also have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into our first issue here today because Democrats are becoming increasingly angry about Governors Abbott and Ducey, Governor Abbott from Texas, Governor Ducey from Arizona, um, putting people who have entered the country illegally onto buses and shipping them to Washington, D.C., to New York City, to Chicago. There's some other places that are actually coming up. I don't know if they've just got a map of where they're planning this out or they're throwing darts at a board, but they have been sending um, busloads of people that are in the country illegally to these Blue sanctuary cities, right? Keep in mind, I, I believe, Christian, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I believe every single city that they've actually shipped a busload to so far have identified as a sanctuary city. In fact, there was there was one member, I'm going to see if I can pull it up here real quick, um, just because I had it. Uh, let me see. It yeah, was, Chicago's a sanctuary city. Yeah, Chicago's a sanctuary city. Okay, and then uh, Brianne uh, Nadau, who's a member of... Um, the Washington, D.C. City Council, um, she, she actually said, when was this? Back in 2019, the district is a sanctuary city, which means our law enforcement does not cooperate with ICE. As council member, I have called for an abolition of ICE and wrote D.C.'s law to establish a permanent immigrant 
Legal Services Fund. So she actually came up with a taxpayer-sponsored fund to allow people who are in the country illegally to be able to sue in order to say. Here's what she said in, on September 8th of 2022. D.C. council member says Arizona Texas governors have turned U.S. capital into a border town with migrant buses. Why does she say that like it's a bad thing? It must. You know what? I know what it is. She's a racist. I was about to say that's this, very racist. Very border racist. town. This is what very happens racist. when the left is faced with reality. I mean, it's it. What's crazy is that you when this first started happening, and we're not talking about thousands of people like flooding their city, right? It, it, initially, we were talking about what a few dozen, maybe a couple hundred, maybe a couple hundred, and the mayor of D.C. was calling like she wanted approval for the National Guard to come in and respond to this, right? Because the, her response to people to people coming into her city illegally was to, you know, call up soldiers with, you know, weapons of war. Maybe their PR agency was off the clock that day. <laughs> I, I love the fact that Mayor Lightfoot over in uh, Chicago welcomed the, the uh, busloads of people with open arms uh, for the cameras. Yeah. And then promptly, very quietly and promptly, send them out of her sanctuary city yeah. to a conservative mayor uh, to yeah. make them his issue. Even though he wasn't a sanctuary city, they had never declared they were a sanctuary city. And she she basically did not give them sanctuary in her city yeah. and sent them to a Republican-dominant uh, Yes. Area. So as it stands right now, Washington, D.C. has been sent approximately 10,000 migrants from Texas and Arizona since April. Now, again, you're a sanctuary city, right? And there, all these other cities have claimed to be this. And now they're all saying that, well, oh, oh my gosh, our, our, our public services are overwhelmed. And the best thing is they're saying, we just wish that we would have had some notice so that we could coordinate. <laughs> hey, guess who else would love to have some notice so that they could coordinate? How yeah. about those border towns that aren't giant sanctuary cities with massive oh, yeah. government welfare programs? Yeah, well, and, and there's a border sheriff. This this guy reported in Fox. A border sheriff slams the D.C. mayor of, and officials for declaring emergency over migrant buses. And he said they have seen nothing. And and again, it's you have all these people that for you know, a long time now, and we actually, again, a lot of people don't know this. Um, I actually went with a group called uh, Moms for America. They had asked us to go and kind of help them with, you know, security and whatnot because they wanted to go down to the border. They didn't want to just, you know, presume what they knew about. The, they actually wanted to go down to the border, look at various checkpoints, talk with people who lived on the border. And so we went down to the the whole McAllen, Texas area, and then we actually went down to some other border towns and, and went there. And we talked to people who lived on the border. Now, every single person that we talked to was actually uh, of Hispanic um, ethnicity. Every single one, right? It's you know, it's it's not like we got a bunch of you know white people together and asked them questions about the border. We were all talking to people, and most of them were you know mothers. They were um, some of them. I think one of them was a school teacher. One of them was a doctor. And we were saying, okay, wh what's it like living down here? And they took us, they took us to one area that was an elementary school right on the border. Like literally you, you walked up, you walked out of the elementary school door, walked up on the levee and there was the Rio Grande, right? Wow. So, so there was the border. And, and as she's describing, you know, some of the issues and things that happened two people actually came up out of like the, while y'all were standing while there, we were standing there, while we were standing there, how many recording. people was it? Two, two, two okay. that came up and, and crossed over. And, um, and again, she, she was just, she was just 
voicing her concerns. And, and she was saying, she goes, look, I still have family in Mexico. I'm not against immigration. Right. Um, I love Mexico. I love my family over there. I love the United States. I, but we need to deal with this. This is a sure. problem. And of course, the this knee-jerk reaction from you know the left and people like AOC that occasionally leave New York City to go down to the border in order to stage photographs while they're crying, like, oh my gosh. All right. As soon as all of a sudden it's like, okay, okay, great. You're a sanctuary city. We're, we're saying that we're overwhelmed. We're, we've been now telling you right. for decades that this is this is an issue. This is a problem um, from from the standpoint of public services, from the standpoint of you know crime, the fact that a lot of these like drug cartels actually manipulate you know immigrants who who do genuinely just want to come sure. to the country. They want a better opportunity for their kids. We can all appreciate that. I would say we have to secure this. And the answer from the left overwhelmingly has been like, well, then you must be a bigot. You must be a racist. This is all dog well, whistling. And so they said, okay, fine, fine. Here you go. You, you're saying you're a sanctuary city. You're saying that this is all good. You're saying that this is not a problem. You're saying that this is actually a positive benefit. And, and you're not acknowledging any of the legitimate concerns that we brought up. Here you go. And now they're saying it's inhumane to put people <laughs> on an air-conditioned bus yeah. and send them, you know, with free trans transportation to an area that has said they will give them sanctuary. Well, look, Dick, Dick Durbin, who's the senator from Illinois, has actually described, he, he has, he's described the busing of, um, you know, people that are in the country illegally up to Chicago. He's described it as cruel and inhumane. I thought it was a little bit funny to have a Democrat claiming that it was cruel and inhumane to send people to a Democrat sanctuary city. Um, but I, 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 can, I would agree that is cruel and I, inhumane to go, to send somebody to a Democrat I, city. Here, here, that they, is here they were. Here we have all these people that were trying to flee countries that are largely governed by, you know, more left wing socialist leaning establishments, high crime areas. Right. And then where do we send them? Chicago, a left leaning <laughs> to be high fair. crime area. Like, yeah, on some level that is, they probably thought, I thought we were coming to America for opportunity and for like safety and security. And you send us to Chicago. Like I can understand why they would probably feel, you know, a little bit betrayed by that. To be fair though, like keep in mind, nobody's being forced to get on these buses. True. Right. It's it, that's it, interesting. It, it, there's no Republican governor that's that's rounding people up against their will, putting them on buses and shipping them to Chicago. So as much as we joke about how, you know, there's, you know, you know, being sent to Chicago is a horrible thing. Like these are people that are willingly going to these cities. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I think it's it's important to point that out because. What they're receiving in New York City and Chicago is probably like one one hundredth of what the problem is right. actually on the border because yeah. it's not like every person that's illegally crossing the border into Texas or Arizona is then getting yeah. on a bus and going to New How York How do you know City. the bus isn't going back across the border? <laughs> yeah. Well, Nick, it would make sense to me that these buses would be taking these illegal immigrants back across the border. What are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, when I talked about this on our on our Instagram, we did some reels on it and whatnot, and, and I had a lot of people that were more conservative comedy, like, I don't like this. In fact, Governor DeSantis even said it. He goes, no, they should be putting them on buses to go back across the border. And I, I, I get what you're saying. Here's the problem. Um, first of all, that's actually more problematic for them to do. Really? Yes, because just put them on the border and ship them across. Now there's there's implications with respect to the federal government. There's implications okay. with respect to the law. The other problem with it is, okay, there, there's been a lot of deportations, but here, here's the issue. New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, um, what do all these areas have in common? Well, all of them have declared themselves to be sanctuary cities, which 
you, you might say, okay, fine, that's their individual choice, except for the fact that all of their congressional delegations, all of the people that are making federal law, all of the people that are opposing more border security, all the people that are opposing um, you know, any sort of, of restrictions, a lot of the people that are actually advocating for more open borders policy, they represent Chicago, right. D.C., New York City. They represent these deep blue sanctuary city areas. Not on the border. Not on the border, right? And so every time they've been told that, look, what you're doing down here in an area that doesn't affect you as much, it is having a disparate impact, and we need to be able to address it. And their attitude is, you must be a racist. Right. How do you get somebody that refuses to learn just through a, a rational, empirical argument? How do you get them to understand that the stove is hot? Feel the pain. So that's what they're doing. And, and look, I, I'm sorry, but to all the conservatives out there that are saying, well, this is, this is the opposite of what we should be doing. I, I'm sorry, we, we've tried it the other way. Hasn't worked. Sometimes people have to understand the, the pain involved with respect to the policy. And right now, New York City and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and these other blue areas that had no problem with any of this as long as it was Texas's problem or Arizona's problem are now recognizing that, oh, that this does represent a huge impact on our public services. This does represent a huge impact on our public schools and our hospitals. This does represent a huge impact on, on various social services that we use. Yeah, they've all been telling you that. And they're only... They're only experiencing a small fraction, a fraction of it, a small fraction a of fraction. what these tiny border towns are experiencing. Yeah, yeah right. that's what I was saying earlier. And you like, look at the ratio of of population and and money to spend, you know, that the Democrats love to squeeze okay. out everyone. Before we move on to the next topic, though, let's not just talk about this. Let's talk about the solution. Yeah. So, Nick, what are your thoughts in terms of. How do we erase the problem of even needing to bust these illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities? How do we remove the incentives for them to come here in the first place? Well, so here's here's the thing. Keep in mind, I'm a very pro-immigration Republican. If, if you want to come to the United States to be a part of what it means to be an American, which is generally, I believe in liberty, I want to work hard, right. I want to take care of my family, I want to do so in relative peace and security, and I also assume responsibility for my... I, that's not a bad thing. No. Right? That, that's a positive incentive for coming to the United States. The, the reason why the, the number of um, the, the reason why the bureaucratic and legal burden with respect to people coming to the United States has increased exponentially over time is not simply because of the volume of population. The reason why it's increased over time is because of the elaborate welfare state. Mm. Right. If there's a number of is there if there's a number of perverse incentives to come to the United States, which is to say, if I go to the U.S., U.S. taxpayers will take care of me. Right. OK, that's problematic. You've now created a perverse incentive. Right. Not to mention the fact that you do have criminal elements. You do have other elements, international criminal elements or terrorist elements that, that see, you know, an open border with a large illegal immigration as a way to move drugs, as a way to move weapons, as a way to move people. Human trafficking has right. increased exponentially. All that is problematic. So the, the solution to all of this is, in, in my opinion, and, and again, it's important to understand something. The government doesn't deal in solutions. The government deals in trade-offs. Okay, so how do we make the incentives for coming to the United States to be positive incentives, and how do we reduce the negative externalities as a result of that? Well, the way you do it is you say coming to the United States means that you're coming here not to take advantage of a massive welfare state. You're coming here to actually be a part, a 
productive member of society. A productive, the social, the the economic, the political engine that is the United States, which is rooted in the idea of individual liberty, property rights, free markets, you know, et cetera. So that's the positive incentive that you want to create. Then you create, you know, negative incentives for people to engage in, in illegal activity. So that's the part where you do need increased security at your border. You do need to reevaluate how your welfare system is structured right. in order to not create those perverse incentives. You, you, do need to, you do need to recognize that if you have a massive influx of people in a short period of time, that it's going to overwhelm particular systems, especially if it, it's, it's open to everybody. Um, and you also need to understand that whatever positive thing that you are attempting to do, there, there's always some entity out there that will attempt to find a negative application, which is to say you might want more people to be able to come into the country, okay? But if drug cartels are taking advantage of that, sure, because you haven't fixed the the perverse incentives, you're going to end up hurting the very people you claim to care about. And if you're not willing to take the time to understand that dynamic, mm-hmm. then at some point I'm going to question whether or not you really care about people. Or, or right. if this is just a political football you're mm. using in order to benefit you. I don't want to get too far off topic here, but I'm really interested in just briefly hearing why the government only deals in trade-offs and not solutions. Because that's that's just kind of reality. Uh, whenever the government says, here's our solution to something, they can, they can categorize it as a solution. But because the government is – the, the thing that is unique to government is it gets to use force in order to achieve its end states. All right? And it doesn't, it doesn't create its own, like, money. So if the government wants to, let's say we want to encourage the arts, right? And so their solution for encouraging the arts is, is that they're going to give more money to the National Endowment for the Arts, and that's going to provide more grants to people to engage in artwork. Okay, well, the trade-off is, is that you could have gone out and bought art with your money, and and you could have bought the art that you liked with your money, Right. but I took that from you. I, I took the disposal. I took a portion of the disposable income you had to, you know, go to a play or go see a, a movie or go buy a painting. I took that from you, and now I'm going to put it in the hands of a bureaucracy. So now the people that are getting the money for art, right, are the people that have the closest relationship to the bureaucracy. Mm. So again, the the solution to encouraging the arts might have been you're going to increase government funding. The practical reality or the trade off is is that you took money out of the hands of somebody that might have spent it on art, or they might have needed that more for food or school supplies or whatever else. You took that decision away from them, okay? And then you put it into a pile where now it'll be determined, now now the way it's spent will be determined by bureaucrats. Right. And inevitably, what usually ends up happening in that sort of scenario is the people that have the closest relationship. It's not that all art is now elevated as a result of this. It's the type of art or the type of entertainment that the people that control the funding want to see more mm. of. So that that's the trade-off that you always have to consider, right? Is that it, it's we we also caught on economics um, opportunity costs or what um, what Hazlitt used to refer to as the seen versus the unseen. Yeah. So the government comes in and says, was that Hazlitt or was that Bastiat? Uh, multiple people have done it. Hazlitt talked about the seen and the unseen quite a bit in his okay. book Economics in One Lesson, but Bastiat talks about it. I, I think uh, Mises talks about it. Hayek talks about it. But but Hazlitt, I think, did one of the best jobs of popularizing this idea that when the government comes in and says, "I'm going to take your money to you know enhance the arts or build a bridge or build sure. uh, uh, you know a park or whatever it is," the scene is the money that was spent up the ribbon cutting for the new art center. The scene is the bridge. The scene is the new park. The unseen is all of the other things that would have been purchased, invested in, built, constructed if those people would have been free to to spend their money the way they wanted. So that's the trade-off. 
I assume there's a correlation between what you're talking about now and our next topic on insulin price controls. Yes. Oh, gosh. So obviously with inflation, everything else being an issue and prices going up across the board, this has been something that has been discussed for a long time and for, for good reason, right? Um, if, if the price of steak goes up, that's that's frustrating, that's, that's angry, but it's typically not something that's life or death. Right. When you're talking about something like insulin, that is that can be life or death with someone that has diabetes. And and one of the biggest frustrations with this it has come from the idea that the like I I, I think the original patent for insulin, uh, I think it was sold in nineteen in the 1920s for a dollar, right? And and it was it was put out there because the person that had designed it wanted this to be available, right? Which is a very noble. wonderful altru altruistic noble thing to do. Well, the way patents work, the way the patent structure is set up in the United States is that you would think, okay, well, this is it. I can just go get insulin, except for the fact that insulin develops over time. And as new developments come about, people can adjust their patent and they can maintain control over selling that particular. Mm. So the most useful form of insulin might still be controlled under, or might still be patent protected. Well, the, the issue that has come up from a lot of us has said, well, wait a second. Why can't I buy these other generic brands if the original patent was sold? Or why can't? Well, because certain companies have been given monopolistic privileges by who through, through their patent through the government, okay. through the federal government, through their patents, and and part of that is done in a way to protect the the very very expensive process for research and development and manufacturing of drugs. So back in the 1960s, it used to be that in order to get a drug to market, you had to demonstrate to the federal government that it wouldn't harm somebody. You didn't have to positively demonstrate that it would actually do what you were telling people it would do, right? You just had to prove that it wasn't it wasn't actually harmful to to the degree that the FDA and whatnot said. They changed that in the 60s where now all of a sudden it's like, no, you actually have to prove that it, it provides a positive benefit. That significantly increased the cost of actually producing the drugs, not to mention the fact that it had created this entire bureaucracy within the FDA to decide, okay, how do we decide whether or not a drug has a positive benefit and to what degree and everything else? So that used to be decided within the marketplace where I could say, I took this, it doesn't work, I'm not taking it anymore. Now you have to go through a, a multi, what's become a multi-billion dollar process to be able to get a drug to market. Sure. So a lot of drug companies were like, well, then it doesn't make sense for us to do this. They're like, oh, no, no, no. We'll still give you patents for it, and now you have monopolistic privileges o over, you know, using this. Well, my say, Nick, though, that these restrictions on the marketplace over insulin are protecting people's lives and making this drug, um, you know, less likely to kill people. Well, that's certainly going to be an argument, right? And and you can always point to drugs that like made it onto the European market that didn't make it onto or the Canadian. U.S. market, or yeah, or made it onto a different market where people got hurt. Right, but they didn't make it onto the U.S. market, and so the the idea is is like, well, see, look, how many people did we save? How many babies did we save? How many? And and you can say that and say, yes, here's the trade-off. The trade-off is is that there's other drugs that have gotten into other markets that have helped save lives or improve lives that for years, perhaps decades, couldn't get into the U.S. market. So how many people died waiting for uh -huh. it to be able to get to market? Right, that's the trade-off. The unseen. And, and when you talk about that trade-off, people, it's easy for people to caricature it as you just don't care about these people or you just don't care about product mm -hmm. safety. Well, th the solution that they've come up with now is not to say, hey, look, we're, we're not going to renew patents on these types of insulin because th they've been available for decades and we, we want more people to be able to design you know, generic brands of insulin so we'll bring the cost down, right? 
Instead, they've said, we're going to keep all of the infrastructure in place. We're going to keep all of these patents in place, but we're going to cap the price at which you can sell it. Okay, <laughs> here's what you need to understand about price caps. Anytime the government comes in and artificially messes with the price, especially when it comes to like capping the price, you're encouraging shortages, rationing, and black markets. Okay. So now if you were concerned, if you said, well, the reason why we need all the safety protocols is we don't want somebody taking bad insulin. Well, if you've, if you've created a legal arrangement to where two or three companies control the price of it and it's so high, well, now you're, you're going to get a black market for insulin. Hmm. If you come in and you tell those companies, well, now we're going to cap the price at which you can sell it. Well, one of two things happens. First of all, they go to the market where they can find the highest price for it. So you end up with shortages in certain areas and, and surpluses in other areas. And then you encourage an environment where, well, I'm going to go into this area and buy as much as I can so I can go resell it in this area over here that's underserved. Well, then the government comes in and says, well, no, no, you can only buy so much. That's rationing. Well, once you've capped the price and you've rationed it, now you're encouraging a black market to produce it through other means in order to get it to the people that need it. So I have two questions here. One, Nick, what is the most optimal situation here? It, so whenever the price of something goes up significantly, usually what happens within the marketplace is that a, a, a price signal, people wonder, like, what, what are prices? Prices are not something that companies just come up with. Right. There's, there's a lot of I people. Find, I find this fascinating. There's a lot of people that think that prices are just, like a company just says, oh, the price of this is this much, and I'm going to make record profits. Well, no, you won't because of competition. Mm -hmm. So what happens when the government removes the competition? And they do this through cartelization. They can also do this through like regulatory environment like they've done with a lot of drugs. Well, when you remove the competition and I'm the only one that can sell this, I now have a monopoly privilege over this that wouldn't otherwise exist in the marketplace. I can charge more. Now, in any other area where they don't have, where they don't have legal monopoly privileges, somebody else comes in and says, hey, you know what? We're going to start making insulin because A, it's not that difficult. And B, there's a huge market for this. And these guys are charging... You know, these guys are charging, you know, 200 bucks for it. And we know we can make a healthy profit at 35. So we're going we're gonna to make it and sell it for 35. Well, what ends up happening is that the people that are selling it for this increased market, they have to reduce their overall costs in order to remain competitive within the marketplace. Unless the government provides them a legal boundary to where people are not allowed to compete with them. And that's what's gone on in the United States. So the optimal environment is is create an environment where more people are allowed to get into that market and compete and actually produce this. But as long as you keep the regulatory structures incredibly expensive, fewer people can actually compete in that marketplace. And if you pervert the patent system to essentially say, we're going to allow you to continue to renew a patent that, quite frankly, at this point, you haven't done anything significant. You're just you're just making minor modifications to keep it out of the, the hounds of a competitive market. If you allow that to continue, well, then you've now created a legal barrier. Well, well Nick, when are you just going to admit that you just want people to die? <laughs> you know, it's that's, interesting. I mean, that's what they say. This that's is, what, that's literally they what they this, say. They Congressman this in Virginia when I voted against the price caps. They're like, how could you do this? I'm like, because I think you're going to create shortages, rationing in black markets. If, if Let's carry a bill where we essentially say that we're going to have open competition for the production of insulin within Virginia. Let, let's do that. Oh, well, the federal government won't let us. Let's do it anyway and then make the feds come down and shut them down. But we'll provide legal protection for them to do it in Virginia. Do you notice how the your answer to Hamilton's question was my guess is like 
two to five minutes long. I, yeah. I, I didn't have like a stopwatch running or anything like that, but that, that was my guess. We'll find out when we look at the timestamps. Yeah. But that is a lot more to say and condense and consume than simply somebody saying, if you don't support yeah. capping the price of insulin, then you want people to die. Yeah. Uh, or or you point. support greedy, evil corporations yeah. that will charge so you whatever you're they want. You're saying that the left can make their argument in a significantly... In a bumper sticker. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you could, you could slap it in as a headline for an email. But yeah. can you explain and, why it is that... They won't. They they will go all about price capping and oh, you're you want evil, greedy corporations to win, but when it comes to any kind of um, patent reform, like Congressman Ben Klein carried a bill that would have reformed the way that they obtain a patent and maintain patents. They would have to prove a certain level of change in order to. Uh, well, because if if big oh, oh, hold on, oh. so you've got Congressman Ben Klein on one side. Wanting, wanting to change how we do patents in order to open up the marketplace more, which would actually hurt big pharma more so than a price cap. And then you've got Abigail Spanberger on the other side pushing for price caps on yeah. insulin. So why can't these two, why can't Abigail Spanberger understand that basic concept of, of patent reform. Well, why even won't, why won't she push? Why, why do they oppose patent reform so hard? I mean, they, they refuse to even hear Congressman Ben Klein's bill. Well, let, let's, let's look at it this way. Um, let, let's assume, all right. I'm, I'm not assuming negative intention. I'm just saying, let's assume that you're someone that believes the government needs to be heavily involved in this entire process. Of course, you're not going to support patent reform because the patent reform allows for less government involvement in the process and more market competition, right? Price caps, on the other hand, is more government intervention into it. So you get to keep your regulatory structure, which you've convinced yourself is absolutely necessary for the for product safety, and you get to you get to dictate what the prices are. So now, not only do you put companies in a position, and here's the important thing to understand: a large, powerful company will concede to a price cap long before that they'll they'll concede to patent reform because patent reform now throws them into a world where they have to be highly competitive in the marketplace and they have to be highly responsive to consumer demand and competition price caps means you're the only one that gets to do it and we're going to cap how much you can make but you're still the only one that gets to do it well if, if you're if you're big pharma you're going to protect your monopoly if that means you have to give up right. on this area over here you'll give up on it and then you know what you'll do You'll shift what you actually make. Mm -hmm. You'll shift your resources to making things that you don't have a price cap on. I, I think that they just default to whatever the lazy argument is that will convince people the quickest, just right. like Christian was saying. Bumper so sticker. how do we do that? How do we uh, go ahead and capitalize on the fact that our argument is right? So how do we make our, our, our correct argument in a much faster, more concise way? Well, the, the, I've got... One recommendation that I don't necessarily think is the solution, but <laughs> I mean, one way that you could go about doing this, and I'm not saying we should do this, but one way you could go about doing this is say what the left is saying, but Back flip it around and yeah. you say, oh, you want to kill people. You want to kill people. You, you want, want shortages. shortages. Yeah. You want people to not have access to this. How why, dare why you? Why don't we do that? Uh, I do. Like, like I did this on the when we were talking about minimum wage on the, on the House floor. A, a lot of a lot of people, not just my colleagues, but a lot of people, are going to be going. Do you have any idea what this is going to do to small business? Do you have any idea what this is going to do to the you know the price of X, Y, and Z? I said, guys, what we should be doing is saying, which is also equally true and and actually even more relevant on some level. I said, why do you hate low skill labor? 
Why do you hate somebody that is just starting right. out and desperately needs this entry-level job? They have to have it in order to gain the experience that they need in order to move up the economic ladder, and you are cutting the ladder out from underneath them. Why are you doing this to them? And they're like, no, no, we're helping those people. I said, no, you're not. I can show you how you're not doing it. I can show you how you're selectively. So why don't we do this with insulin? Why can't we just say you want people to die <laughs> just like they I do? Mean, we, we, we can. Uh, part I think it's on, on two levels. Part of it might just need I mean, the argument has been made that that is exactly what we need to do is go in and be like, oh, you want. The, it's the one the argument we is, haven't made yet. Here's the difference, though. Here's the difference. though. it doesn't seem as intuitive. Right. Me saying insulin is high. So we'll cap the price of insulin to help people with diabetes. That's that is what, what's my favorite line? Sounds plausible. Superficially plausible. Right on its face, that seems like it made sense. So What's the problem? The price is too high. How do we fix it? We cap the price. There, now you can afford your insulin. Well, why can't now, we just say the price is too high? We need to break up this monopoly to lower prices. Why can't we do it like that? No, you can't. You can, and that that would be a more appropriate way to do it. Is is to say that what this really is is government. A government-supported yeah. monopoly is causing the price. If you don't want to break up break the monopoly, up you want people to die. And that, Why can't we just do we that? Can. We two, can. Two there things. you go, people. We made I the think argument. <laughs> the one point I want to make here, and I've made this a couple times before, but I think it's so important. The industries most ripe for greed to be present are the industries where the government has stepped in between the producer and the consumer and placed itself right in the middle. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the important thing to understand. Everyone talks about the, you know corporate greed. Does corporate greed exist? Yes, people are greedy. Here's what I don't understand. Why do you think politicians are less greedy? Right. You don't think politicians are greedy for power and access and influence and status? I mean, but but they're the ones you're going to trust oh, to fight yeah. against this other greed. <laughs> or it could be, just spitballing here, that the same people shouting the loudest about everybody else's greed are ignoring their own. Because when they come in and they say that person's greedy and the only way that we can stop that person is by giving me more power. Oh, that doesn't sound convenient. Right. Don't just follow the money, people. Follow the power. Quick question for you. So let's say someone says, well, at least the Democrats are doing something. What is your plan? My response is, is doing the wrong thing isn't helpful. Right. Like I, I don't I, I will never understand this. Um, and it has become this common trope within politics. Like, well, at least they're doing something. If what they're doing is hurting you, then the first thing you want them to do is stop what they're doing. Right. Not act like, well, gosh, you know what? I'm going to hit you in the face as hard as I can until you can come up with a different plan for how I can use my fist. <laughs> No, how about you just stop hitting me in the face? <laughs> I remember, I think it was about 10 years ago that I remember you told me that line. This is around the time that we were first becoming friends. Yeah. And like that's that was one of those quotes from Nick that made me start realizing like, man, we need to get this guy into the House of Delegates. Um, so you're the <laughs> We blame no, you, no, it's, Christian. It's, it's, it's true. There's always this constant idea that, okay, well, you don't have a government, that you don't like their government plan. Well, what's your government plan? Well, okay, here's my government plan. My government plan is to acknowledge that the government isn't always the best planners. Right. And that every time the government is planning on your behalf, it actually takes away or diminishes your ability to plan for yourself. And so the end result is, is that you end up with a much worse plan, but the only way they'll, they, they, they've rigged the game. They've rigged the game to believe to make you believe you have to support some government plan, you know, for whatever it is. But you do have a legislative plan. You do have a plan. Yes. And the plan is to break up the monopoly. Yeah, so the, expand the, on that. So that 
that well, I mean, you've kind of broken down there, babe. Good job. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it is that. It's like when you when you see a government monopoly being created, and there's two ways government monopolies are usually created. There, there's the hard monopoly, which is the government comes in and says, you're the only ones allowed to do this. And then there's the soft monopoly, which is we're going to raise the taxes and regulations so much on a particular industry to where the only people that can afford to do it are the big guys. And then the big guys are constantly lobbying for more rules and regulation to, to create a barrier to entry into the marketplace. And that's what you have right now. That's why it, that's why it blows my mind every time something like price caps come in or, or we talk about like a government bailout. And I'm like, the government should not be doing student loan bailouts. I'm like, well, where were you when they bailed out the banks? I was saying they shouldn't bail out the banks. Oh, I love yeah, those people again. on Twitter that were like, oh, so so let me get this straight. You support the the 2008 Wall Street bailouts, but you don't support student loan debt forgiveness. And then you're you're having to point out, uh, no, I've opposed I, both yeah, of well, them. The, the latest like, one is PPP loans. You. Yeah. The, the latest they, one is PPP loans, though. Yeah. They're saying, oh, you guys were all quiet about the PPP loans. And, you yeah. know. It, it, it's like, first of all, Two very different things, but no, I didn't want the government to shut down all of industry. That's right. what exactly. I didn't want to happen. So yeah, in every single thing, there, we do have a plan. It's just that they only accept plans that give the government more control. And when you have a plan that says, I'm not going to give the government more control, they act like you don't have a plan. Right. I feel like we're very reactive. And I feel yes. like we really should be on offense when it comes to a topic like this yeah. and act actively push to break up the, the monopolies in order to force them to look at our argument instead of it being in response to them saying price caps. Yeah. Instead, I just want to push for our agenda to break it up and to change how we do patents and let them have to be on defense for a change. How no, about that? And I, th I think that makes perfect sense. I, I think the part, part of the issue here, though, does have to excuse me, does have to do with changing the mindset on the way people look at it. Because if people automatically assume that, oh, there's a problem, what's the government's solution? Okay, that, that automatically at a foundational level benefits the left. If people look at a problem and say, gosh, what are the litany of different ways that we could actually address this problem through the marketplace, through charity, through voluntary cooperation? And oh yeah, by the way, maybe government has some role to play in all of that. That's a completely different mindset that's far more beneficial to the right because we're not the ones constantly trying to expand government power. And so part, part of what we try to do here is not only say, yes, we do have a, an answer to this, but it's also to change the mindset because that's where the true like paradigm shift takes place. It's not when people say, oh yeah, you've made a good point on that could cause shortages. The real paradigm shift comes when people say, oh yeah, you're right. Government actually created this problem and the solution is not better government. The solution is the government really shouldn't be tinkering with this because they don't know how to do it. That's true, but because it was done, the, the problem was created through legislation, it also has to be solved through undoing that legislation, which is also legislation. That's true, as so long as that's they what understand I mean. what the end state is. Of and, course. And, yeah. So last one I wanted to hit on here real quick here, because I think this is interesting. <laughs> Obviously, Queen Elizabeth II, the, the longest reigning British monarch, Christian, who's the longest reigning monarch of all time? Do I have to say his name? Yeah. <laughs> Louis the 14th. No, Jesus. But yes, Louis the 14th. <laughs> um, yeah, Louis the 14th is the longest reign. What was it? 70? 72 years. 72 she was years. 70 years. She was, it'll be May 2024 would have been the month that she would have surpassed Louis the 14th. Yeah. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that's actually technically longest reigning sovereign monarch because uh, there were regions um well no 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 no. there, there were in the the colonial period um in i think it was swaziland 
um, during the British colonial period, um, period when Swaziland was a British protectorate. So it wasn't an, it, it was a monarchy. They had their own royal family and everything, but it, it was under, you know, under the protection of the British crown. So it yeah. wasn't its own independent state. Yeah. So the king of Swaziland actually, I believe, had a longer reign. Um, it, he, uh, he was born in like the 1890s or something like that, and he didn't die until the 1980s. Wow. And he was king basically almost since he was born. Okay. Um, so he actually Longest reigning monarch, but not longest reigning yeah, sovereign. It's so, so, so Louis XIV is the longest reigning independent sovereign monarch. Okay. Um, now in that history. We've, now and Elizabeth that we've spent... II is the second longest. Okay. All right. So there you have it. Now what's interesting is, is the response that has been with, with Queen Elizabeth um, dying. And um, I mean, I'm not necessarily, I mean, look, I have never been all that enthralled with the royal families. Or, oh, I'm or a whatnot. Republican. Yeah, yeah. And, in more ways than one. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but, I, but I do, th what, what I think is interesting about this is, one, the left's reaction. You saw that. There was this one college professor that came out and said, I hope yeah. her death is excruciating and everything else. Um, and then you've had other people that have, have said, oh, gosh, this is, a this is a really sad time. And then it's been brought up questions of, like, you know, colonialism. And, and of course everyone now is treating like the English empires, if it's something unique within history and uniquely evil. And I just don't think that's, can true. I just say that the internet was a very interesting place yeah. when it was announced that she died. Like the, the, the 24 to 48 hours after that news, there were many places on the internet where people were saying very, very similar things to what that college professor said. Yeah. That was just prominent, but there were ordinary people yeah, um, that were saying very similar things and also saying things that I think are historically inaccurate about, like, you know, the, the British Empire was this force of evil and genocide and killed all these people. And, and you know, they're basically no better than the Nazis or, or any, anything like that. And what I find very fascinating is that a lot of these people, usually they're like in my age group or younger, right? They're like, you know, in their 20s or something like that, you know, that are saying all these things, agreeing with those comments from this, this college professor these almost, I want to say that let, let, let me, let, let me actually add one more thing before I conclude that they were saying this. And then if you look at the statements that were being put out by organizations like Sinn Féin, um, Sinn Féin, yeah. Sinn Féin, whatever the, the Irish Republicans over yeah. in Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland that used to be the political wing wing of the oh, IRA. Yeah. They, they used to be terrorists yeah, and now yeah. they're a political party basically. Yeah. If you look at what they put out, it was the most mild, soft, yeah. you know, conciliatory, you know, respectful statements. They the, the party actually sent out emails to their members saying, here's what you should be saying yeah. in this yeah. time period. And they were like trying to give like, you know, guidance to their yeah. their members on how to talk about this. And it was I think it was the head of the party said something along the lines of, you know, Personally, I'm actually very grateful for the work that Elizabeth did, you know, with the Good Friday Agreement and stuff like that. Yeah. So what I find very fascinating was the retired terrorists <laughs> were more respectful wow. than the LARPer terrorists the on LARP the Internet. <laughs> well, Nick, by, by the way, for those of you that don't know what a LARP is, it's a live action role play. Well, Nick, <laughs> that, was a, that, was a, that was a sick burn. Yeah, the, former, the former retired boomer terrorists yeah. from the 60s, 70s and 80s. We're, we're saying more respectful things than these 20-something-year-old wannabe LARPer terrorists yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Is it safe to say that the left in America does not like Queen Elizabeth? Yeah. Why is that? Because they, they see they see the British Empire as like vestige of, of colonialism and expansionism and, and, and all these other things. And look, you can oppose empire and oppose colonialism. I oppose both. 
Um, you could also understand that there was a there was a a time in history where empire and colonialism was just Nobody looked at that with like a negative moral connotation, right? And you can say, oh, well, the people that were being colonized did. Yeah, except earlier in their history when they were colonizing other people, right? There, there was this time where it, it was just kind of seen that if you were the biggest and the strongest, then of course this is what you did. You expanded your empires. And, and that was something that transcended all like cultures. One of the biggest differences that you saw within something like the British Empire was that there were, of course, like horrible issues of like brutality and repression and all that in, in different uh, times and, and whatnot. You also saw like a dramatic shift happening within the British Empire later on where they did see themselves as having a mandate to end slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and they actively worked to do so within, within their imperial power, especially within sub-Saharan Africa. So this, this idea that... Um, you know, all empires and all colonialism are, are all the same. No, you can certainly say that it's it's bad. Right. It's bad to go over and impose your view on somebody else and try to take over and take their land. I, I think we can all safely say that's a bad idea. Um, but but to act as if the British Empire was somehow like unique within that. No, our, our thoughts on empire and colonialism changed. Right. And it's and it's interesting. You even had like Bertrand Russell, who was a, a secular atheist um, leftist, said that yeah, he goes if Gandhi would have tried what Gandhi did. Um, he, he essentially went so far as to say that Gandhi was successful in India because he was confronting an, an empire that believed in Judeo-Christian values that was having a really hard time reconciling their, their Christian values with the idea of empire. If he would have tried that against Hitler, Hitler would have saved him the trouble of starving himself. Right? <laughs> it, it's, so th- that's the idea where you look back at the fact that Queen Elizabeth II largely presided over the dissolution of the British okay. Empire that's interesting. and did it in, in such a way to where... I mean, yes, you, you got to understand that there there was this break with this whole idea and mentality and way of thinking about empire. Um, but but I, I think she largely tried to do it in a way that um, kind of maintained a certain kind of um, unity within the Commonwealth of Nations. Like Canada is still a part of the, com- the British Commonwealth. Australia is still a part of the British Commonwealth, right? And that doesn't mean that the Queen or the British Parliament has any sort of like legislative power over there's separate sovereign countries, but there's still this commonwealth of countries from the British empire. And, and, and again, to just paint it all in one light without understanding any of the other surrounding dynamics or historical context is problematic. So last question here to close this out is the purpose of the monarchy gone dissolved. And why do they even bother having one? At I this know because the, the monarchy in England monarchy in most places with very few exceptions don't have a great deal of power anymore. Unless you're talking about like Saudi Arabia. Um, the the role that I think the British monarchy plays that Americans don't quite it's it's not something that we're used to. Um, it it provides something of kind of like a a unifying cultural. People use the word mascot. I think that's a little bit flippant. Right. Um. What what it is is that the the monarchy now is supposed to represent something that the people of of Great Britain can rally behind. Um. In, in times of crisis. That isn't partisan, hmm. right? Because the 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 queen or the king is not conservative or labor. The Do they the ever take not, positions either way? They they can. That they've done a lot less so. And and, and really, Queen Elizabeth could probably take a, a significant amount of the credit for this. Mm-hmm. Is that the Queen Elizabeth was a very hands off monarch when it came to voicing opinion, whereas Victoria was was much more aggressive, and and you know when it came to like policy discussions. Queen, under Queen Elizabeth's reign, the monarchy, I think, really transitioned more into this idea that 
they're there to represent kind of like the unifying component of the British people. They're not there to opine about what the tax structure should look like or you know what, what policy should be in this. That's left to parliament. And, and the monarchy provides something that everyone in Great Britain can kind of rally behind. And that's why you saw like the addresses that they come up with during things like COVID and, and whatnot, right. or is, is this idea of being very, very unifying and we're all in this together. You know, again, within the United States, our political leader is partisan. And it's the same way in Great Britain, but they have this other entity right. that is theoretically nonpartisan and just represents kind of in the United States, we've kind of looked more of that like um the Constitution, right? Or the Declaration sure. of Independence, or or maybe even the flag to some degree. But it's this idea that regardless of who's president, we all agree that we you know, the Constitution is, right. is critical to the, the fabric of the United States or the, you know, the principles within the Declaration of Independence. As you start to see less of that within a country, as, as you start to see more, um, as, as you have fewer of these, these cultural components that are truly unifying as to suggest that this represents a core unifying component of our culture, that's actually very dangerous for a society. And so I, I do think the monarchy still provides something like that for, for Great Britain. We'll see what happens going forward, because I don't think King Charles III has as much goodwill, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I've got, I know that we're at the very end. I've got a fun fact for you. Okay. Um, Charles III is likely, likely going to be the first king in English history or British history named Charles who did not get his head chopped off or sent into exile. Wow. <laughs> he said, probably He's still, that, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And on that note is, is on a Christian's, uh, you know, last note of regicide there. <laughs> we want to thank you all for joining us. Please join our volley chat. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Also, we are going to be, we, we've been talking about this for a while where we've wanted to get, you know, again, our, our members on volley more involved. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to be going to the volley chat immediately following this. And I'm going to be asking, Hey, what, what are some other topics you'd like us to address? We've also talked about doing perhaps a, a round table where we all get to ask each other questions on here. Right. And uh, so we're, we're considering those, but we are always looking uh, always looking for ideas from our audience on things that you would like to see next. Once again, thank you for joining us on making the argument. Also, please follow us on uh, on our uh, social media, Twitter. <laughs> I can't believe I'm <laughs> what are you following us on? Yeah, our Twitter, our Instagram. Uh, follow us over there as well. Join in on the discussion, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.